Last week we looked at the idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I believe there was a hard-hitting challenge in that for all of us to examine our appetites. And to be honest, I was overwhelmed by the amount of feedback that was coming back from the congregation over that. Um, A lot of people were really reflecting throughout the course of the week. There were text messages, emails, different ways. And I really appreciate uh, hearing back along along those lines and hearing where people are at with that. So God bless you for doing that. And it is great to just to hear all that sort of stuff. In particular, my statements on social righteousness was actually something that I felt the Spirit wanted to highlight, particularly in this town. Because too many believers, particularly ones in service-based or welfare-based professions, actually get caught up a lot in that expression. They want to see things put right. They've got a sense of, of justice, of social welfare, social justice. And so it becomes a social... My Christianity compels me to put things right in the world around me, which is excellent to see. But sometimes we get caught up in that at the detriment of the other two. The ones that the imputed or the implanted righteousness, the legal, the moral, the the things that that are actually happening in the spirit, the, the, the righteousness by which we are saved, not the righteousness by which we do. And uh, sometimes we do one thinking that is a substitute for the other, but we need to get the first one right first. And uh, so let's make sure we're actually saved. Let's get our own salvation worked out with fear and trembling. Let's work out, make sure we are made righteous in God first. And out of that, let our lifestyle change and let the world around us change. All right, you can't put the cart before the horse. So I just felt really stirred by the Spirit to reiterate that bit. Otherwise, we get to the point that the Apostle Paul feared to preach, to demonstrate the kingdom, to show kingdom things, but still be found disqualified for the kingdom at the end, lest I myself become disqualified. So let's not run that risk. Let's just keep those things in mind. Today we're going to look at two more Beatitudes. And the first one is Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, mercy was a word that God used a lot in Israel's past. It spoke of his own nature and it spoke of the behavior that he expected from his people. The Ark of the Covenant had a feature which we translate today as a mercy seat. Blood was poured, atonement was represented there. Sin covered by blood. In the nation's formative years, mercy was a key element in the way Israel interacted with God. The writers of the Psalms got pretty transparent as they wrote and they realized that they were in desperate need of that trait from God. They needed God's mercy. And there was an expectation that the recipients of God's mercy became extenders of mercy themselves. And the Old Testament prophets backed that up. One of the better verses, better known verses is Micah 6.8. In my last church in Wangaratta, this was the governing verse of one of our members there. He has shown all you you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. There's a really good picture of Christian living right there. Sadly, one of the biggest rebukes Israel received was the abuse and even the absence of mercy. In Zechariah 7, we read clearly that the Lord was looking for this. The Babylonian exile was behind them. The people were asking the priests if they should be continuing their rituals and their fasting. And instead, the Lord questions the motivation of all that stuff and he calls for something more noble. And he says these words through the prophet. This message came from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Judge fairly. Show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners and the poor. And do not scheme against each other. What a hard-hitting rebuke. Yeah, great rituals, guys, but what about this stuff? Another key note verse to note, and this one really matters. I'll explain why in a sec, is, um, is Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I tap into that particular verse because... Jesus himself repeated this verse a few times in his ministry. The first is in Matthew 9 where he speaks of being called, you know, where, where Matthew himself speaks of being called by Christ to follow. In response, he opens his home and all, has all these tax-collecting workmates come and join him and Jesus for a meal. It's an awesome scene. People who once sold out their people, once sold out a place that was supposed to set up the kingdom, were now finding restoration through the kingdom before the nation they sold out. Sadly, it's the Pharisees who didn't think this was appropriate, particularly for a rabbi of Jesus' status, the standing, right? And they're not shy in sharing that, but Jesus, in response, pulls out this verse to remind them all of of their ongoing lack of mercy towards others. When someone wanted to get their affairs in order with God, instead of writing them off going, no, these people are sellouts, we don't extend grace and faith and favour to them, Jesus says, show mercy. Not long after that, in Matthew 12, this same mob is trying to nail Jesus on eating grain in a field on a Sabbath. And healing a lame man in the synagogue that same day. Jesus was doing what he did out of mercy and compassion. But it turns out it was also classed as work on the sacred day by the religious folk. They were seeking to punish Jesus for doing good because their religion called for such treatment. And again, the verse Jesus refers to is Hosea 6.6. And he uses this to defend his actions. Mercy, not sacrifice. It's safe to suggest that something had been lost in God's people. They'd built up an admirable religious system with the hope of being ready for the kingdom. They had duty, they had ritual, they had a system for being as observant of God's letter of the law as one could possibly be. But they were missing the spirit of the law. And the religious expression came at the expense of one of the greatest expressions of God, mercy. So it should come as no surprise that when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, 
after he, he speaks of the inner workings of a person, the first four Beatitudes. He then starts to address the outward traits of a kingdom citizen and mercy is the thing, first thing he mentions. Both the Greek and the Hebrew words for mercy refer to outward expressions or manifestations of pity, particularly when shown by humans, the ones that are used when, he says, when God says, I want mercy, he's talking about human interaction. It is active compassion for people in need. And it's often linked biblically with grace and it serves to complement it. Grace deals with sin and guilt, while mercy deals with the effects, the pain, the distress that sin produces. Grace gives pardon, mercy gives relief. It's that element within us that lets people off the hook. Because we have a revelation of how that feels. Because of this, it works as a great outward flow of what being meek is all about. We have an inner sense of grace because we know how fallible we really are before God and we're humbled by that. And when that inner sense is right, our capacity for mercy towards others becomes possible. It all works in together. It's also interesting that if the Beatitudes are to be read in a logical sequence then this would be the first proof that we should be looking for to see how our appetite for righteousness is going. In that thinking, a person who claims to have a solid faith but displays no mercy would in fact be found to be a fraud. And I believe Jesus backs that up later in the Gospels. If we, the recipients of mercy of God's mercy, refuse to extend mercy. Something has been lost in translation in our faith walk. Despite all the religion and kingdom preparation that was going on amongst the priests and the Pharisees, it was quite evident that Israel did not have mercy down at all. But Jesus would lead the way. And we just remembered the cross. We remembered the work of Christ here. We just remembered that a new mercy seat would be established. So that all who followed Christ would know what true mercy was. Even at the cross, he implored the Lord not to hold the actions of his murderers to their account. Again, as he breathed his last, one final act of mercy. Jesus made it very clear that in the kingdom, there is mercy. And as kingdom people, followers of Jesus are to demonstrate that. It's also important to note that no limits were set for the focus of our mercy. There was no suggestion that this was for the church only or for each other as co-believers. There wasn't a suggestion that this was for people who would listen to what you had to say as you witnessed to them. Indeed, Jesus demonstrated that those who opposed received it too. There was no category of person mentioned here. In Acts 10, we're reminded that God is not one who plays favourites. Neither should we be. The ministry of Jesus shows that his mercy 
extended to Pharisees and regular people, to men and women, to adults and children, even to Jews and to Gentiles. In his own context, insiders and outsiders of his faith. He extended mercy to terror threats and dangerous people. He extended it to prostitutes and seemingly the worst of all in our modern evangelical bubble, the patriots, the unpatriotic. Big thing in America right now. He extended it to those of opposing belief systems who were putting him to death. Mercy that knows no bounds. And our king asks us to follow his lead. The outcome is clear to us both now and for eternity. Those that show mercy shall themselves be the recipients of it. This is not a give to get deal. Because that implies that we're saved by works. But it carries the idea of grace that I mentioned last week. We live righteously because the grace extended to us makes us righteous and empowers us to live righteously. We extend mercy because of mercy extended to us. It's a natural outflow of us because we have a revelation and a receiving of mercy ourselves. when we see the fruit of mercy coming out in our behaviour, we can walk a bit taller in our confidence before God because we know that God's mercy is alive and well within us and we have a great eternity to look forward to. Something, there should be reason to hold your head up high if you can demonstrate mercy. It shows that you've received a revelation of that. If we don't see mercy appearing in our lives, then we will need to take time for some prayerful self-examination. Because it may just be that we've not admitted our own need for God's mercy in our life. And if we don't know God's mercy, and we're just winging it when trying to extend our own, That's not a very certain way to live and I believe the gospel allows us to live with more certainty than that. So we have blessed that are merciful for they will be shown mercy. The next verse is this, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The heart It's the best place to start when we explore this sentence. Because both Jesus and pretty much every biblical writer uses this term with a specific idea in mind. The Greek word is cardia, and we still get a a word linked to the human heart in medical circles today from that. We understand that there is a physical element to the heart. In Jesus' time, there were doctors, there were health experts who knew what the organ of the heart actually was and the way it pumped blood. We didn't have complete primitive ignorance then. People knew physiology. The ancient world might have been primitive compared to us in some ways, but they were not without significant intelligence. 
But in the theology of the ancient Hebrews, because of its importance to the physical makeup of a man as its chief organ, it also became known figuratively as the chief area of our spiritual makeup as well. Today, when we ask Jesus into our heart, we still carry with us that figurative understanding. Theologically, we see this both the Old and New Testaments. The heart came to stand for man's entire mental and moral makeup for the hidden springs of our, our personal life. Wow, that came out right. In Romans 2.15 and Acts 15.9, this figurative picture of the heart is the place of divine influence. In the later verse, we'll see that faith causes our hearts to be purified. Our moral code is influenced and purified when we embrace the grace of God. In John 14.1 and other verses, it's spoken of as the seat of grief. It is also spoken of as the seat of joy, the place of our desires and our affections, of our perception, our thoughts and our understanding. It is linked with our powers of reason and imagination. It's linked with our conscience, our intentions, our purpose, our will and our faith. Some good examples of that last one include Romans 10.10. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. They work in tandem there. Hebrews 3.12 gives us a warning about that part of our life. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So it constantly talks about our internal makeup. When it talks about our heart, that's what we're referring to in the, in the Scriptures. So Jesus is getting down and dirty with the inner workings and the motives of a person here and how those things affect others. And to Jesus, this was a big deal. The Pharisees had a strong commitment to outward devotion. But unfortunately, we also see that Jesus had a very clear assessment of where they were really at. There was an internal problem getting worse and worse because although the Pharisees had everything going on right outwardly, they were not making space for God to speak and give a holy diagnosis of where they were really at. Their only diagnostic was how much rules they kept, how they kept the letter of the law. They were not letting the Spirit actually go, hang on. Let's take a real look at this now. That's why it was so jarring when Jesus spoke into that. The living word spoke into their hearts. Their moral code, their internal makeup was not consistent with their external display. Their inward makeup was made of self-reliance, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness, self-focus. There was an absence of grief, mercy. There was no hunger for right living. They were in a place that was the opposite of what Jesus was calling for in true believers. Jesus had the spiritual toxicology report. And the impurities were numerous. And this is why Jesus calls for something different for the inner workings of a kingdom disciple. A heart or an inner life which is maintained in a state of purity. When this word was used in the Old Testament in the context of the heart, purity packed a punch. 
David used it a couple of times here. I'm going to actually revisit these in a sec. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So when we're coming into worship, check our motives. If you walked up into the temple of the Lord with a idol, a little mini statue of Baal in your pocket, you were not going to really do much in that worship time. When, when it came to coming front and centre before God, David was aware of the standard. And this becomes painfully obvious to him at one stage of his life when he had to get personal. After his adulterous and murderous fall, he wrote a song for Keith Green. It includes this line, Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. If we look further down into the Kings, the call for deep personal reflection continues. Solomon, Proverbs. People may think all their ways are pure, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The ancient Hebrews had a pretty good handle from the Old Testament that inner purity was a big deal. But it had been lost on the generation Jesus was addressing. When the Old Testament left off, we saw the state that the nation was in. There was a corrupt priesthood. There was cheapened sacrifice. There was a last statement saying that a purifier is coming to sort this mess out. And that was 400 years before Jesus came. The sense of coming front and centre before God in a pure state was no longer happening. And now Jesus calls his followers to get that back. The Greek idea of pure means to be unadulterated, to be free from spot and blemish. The Hebrew word meant to be purged or polished, to be restored to brightness. It was a picture of being untarnished. The context was that within the heart of man, a tarnishing factor is the sin we choose to entertain rather than the pursuit of holiness. And that tarnish would only serve to insulate us from the work of God in our lives and limit what he could do. Ultimately, an impure heart becomes a divided heart, which would only know or see God in glances until things got so dark that you wouldn't see anything at all. The way of the kingdom is the pursuit of a lifestyle that maintains the purity of heart that took place when we placed our faith in Christ. Something changed when we got saved. A new purity came about. And as believers, we're supposed to maintain that because we have all the power of the kingdom and the Holy Spirit able to help us do that. 
We live differently because we're powered differently and we're governed differently and we have a different sovereign. We have all these different things going for us. And out of that, Jesus goes, you got the toolkit, guys. I'm making things new. Now maintain that. Live that way. Live it out. This does not mean absolute perfection. Because that's actually not possible this side of eternity. It does mean not exposing, exposing our hearts to the things of the world that are guaranteed to tarnish it. Let me illustrate something here because I'm really thirsty and I've been waiting to get to this point before I open. Before I even pop the cap on this thing, fresh out of the supermarket, it so bothers me that I have to buy water to drink in a town, in a regional centre. Anyway, bring on our rain tanks. Water as a compound is what? H2O? In its absolute pure form, H2O, right? Before I even pop the seal on this thing, can you guarantee to me that I have 100% absolutely, completely unadulterated H2O in this bottle? Absolutely not. And yet we still call it pure water. And I'm not making a joke about that. That's as pure as it gets. But we know, we know there's more in it, don't we? Some of these bottles will tell you that there's trace elements. Potassium, magnesium, a bit of chlorine. Different things in these bottles. That means it's not just 100% H2O, right? I've actually read reports that suggest that just consuming complete H2O might actually rob us of something, it might not actually be good for us anyway. Because of the environment pure H2O is found in, it will have compounds of trace elements in it, won't it? Because of what it runs through. H2O in its purest form outside of a laboratory doesn't exist. Humanity, in its purest form, only showed up twice in history. Adam, in the garden before the fall, and the second Adam, which was Christ. Outside of those laboratory conditions, pure humanity doesn't exist because of the environment we are born into, because of the environment that we flow through. There will always be trace elements of the world within us because no one is completely righteous this side of eternity. The righteousness we have is God-given through our faith in Christ. We can't work our way into a righteous state and go, here I am, God, you've got a bargain, pure H2O. Why? Because we are constantly surrounded by an environment that just gets on us. But while we might not have much control on the trace elements that we've inherited, we can, can control the deliberate pollutants, can't we? 
If I pour a bit of this out and put red cordial in it, I've polluted this pure water, haven't I? It's not considered pure until I put something else into it. Impure until I put something else in it. A deliberate pollution. In Psalm 24 that I read out earlier, the pollution is idolatry. And today, that's more than having a statue of Buddha on your car, in your dashboard or something. There's a lot of things that we worship in the world around us. In Psalm 51, a pollutant is inconsistency. When David asked for a pure heart and a steadfast or firmly planted inner self, that's what he was going for. And it's sobering to realise that his inconsistency led to two severely damaged families and a murdered man. In Proverbs, the pollutant comes out in our motives. James 1.27 tells us that our purest religious observance comes when we extend mercy and live intentionally free of worldly pollutants. To not oppress the widow and the orphan and to live morally pure lives. Tarnish on silver occurs as a result of pollutants in the air and it creates an impurity that shields the metal surface so that the shine is withheld. Tarnish in our hearts occurs because of the pollutants we allow in. Poor motives, inconsistent faith, worldly pleasures, the refusal to die to ourselves, idols, things that we worship before God things that we put ahead of God in our priorities. And that tarnish robs our hearts of the ability to see God in all his glory. But the outcome of being pure in heart, according to Jesus, is that we will see God. That is, in the now, we will develop a trait within our hearts that knows the will of God and the voice of God with increasing fidelity. We'll develop a greater awareness of His presence and we'll have a greater sense of His purposes and plans in our life. We will see the hand and the purposes and the manoeuvring that God is doing because it will be somewhat unveiled to us in our spiritual sight. And we'll see him in eternity. 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. In other words, we will see his full glory. All who have this hope in him, purify yourselves, just as he is pure. In other words, remain in the state that Jesus made you. Pursue what Jesus made you and live it out. We're going to reflect. I'm going to invite the band up now, please.
Let me ask you some questions, church, real briefly. How is your mercy going? How well have we grasped the idea of God's mercy towards us? What revelation of God's mercy have we been blessed to receive? And is an outward flow of mercy appearing in us? Does it come out in compassion towards others? Does it come out in forgiveness towards others? Does it let other people off the hook? When is the last time this trait was clearly evident in your own personal being? Duty and ritual to our faith is admirable, but the Lord is looking for us to hang our hat on, not to hang our hat on duty and ritual, but mercy. Are you in need of it right now before God? And are you withholding it right now when you know you should not be? What's the Lord want to say to you about mercy? Let's reflect on the call to be pure in heart. This means to have an untarnished heart. The tarnish builds up because of pollutants we don't filter out. There's many ways we get polluted. Bad motives, lust of the air, lust of the world. We get polluted when we remain inconsistent in our walk. I remember a really silly day when my mum was really into shiny silver ornaments in her house. And although my job was to regularly dust those things with a feather duster, mum would occasionally polish those things. And that was a rigorous job. She'd get the silver out and just go crazy on those things. The end result was great. And the difference between what it was to what it became was huge. The tarnish really stood out. The stuff that stayed out in the open, not in a sealed cabinet, got the most tarnished. When I was a younger man, I had a car and I had these beautiful alloy wheels on a Valiant. It was awesome. And I saw in a magazine, this guy's got the same mags I've got, but mine are pasty white. What's going on? Went to the car shop, got my, the great chemical to really do the job. Took four wheels off, had the whole car on stands. And it took me a good eight hours to polish up those wheels to make them look like the magazines. <laughs> Hands were like dry from this awful chemical. Should have wore gloves. That thing come up looking amazing. But the work... When our hearts get tarnished, it needs a firm hand and a fussy eye to get things right. And only the Lord has those things. We need to let Him do His 
firm work in us. You can't just have a passing glance when you're going, God, search my heart. It's not like flicking a page and having a speed read. That's going to be a... You're going to feel it if you say those words to Jesus and mean it. But the shine that comes afterwards is amazing. The pain's worth it. Is there tarnish in there right now? And will we let Jesus get to work in there and strip it back for us? Like that song we said before, Lord, strip it all away till only you remain. Not just now in a few minutes of prayer, but in a week or a month or more of seeking the Lord. Is the Lord's voice or presence feeling dimmer now than it was? Are we not seeing God the way we once were? It could be tarnish. Let Jesus in and do what he does best. Would you reflect on mercy and purity this morning? And when you're ready and when Dale's ready, we'll continue to worship the Lord. But let's just bow in prayer real briefly.